That is your heart cry in a sense it is, and just to plead with the Lord to increase all of what has just been communicated by testimony. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and as you're turning, turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off our study in chapter 5. But we are headed into a new section, and in an extended study, sometimes it is like that old saying, perhaps you heard, I couldn't see the forest for the what? For the trees. So what was was right in front of me so occupied my attention that I really lost sight of where I was in the big picture. And I think that can happen again in an extended study like we've been in in this book of Matthew. And so we're starting back here at the beginning to remind us of some elements of the big picture. And the title of this book, as it's given in the Bible in front of you, is not the book of Matthew, but what? You look right at the title, it is the the gospel according to Matthew. And sometimes we even refer to this as the first of four gospels. Of course, believers, I think, are, are understanding what we mean by the expression four Gospels. There, uh, there really is, uh, if we're precise, there's not four Gospels, right? There, there's four records of the one Gospel. Uh, the one Gospel is the proclamation of the good news concerning the, the person and work of Jesus. And there are four records of this life and, and this ministry. And one reason, remember, that there are four records of the life and ministry of Jesus is because the the glory of that life. And we've been talking about glory as the unique excellence, but the unique excellence of the person and work of Jesus is so multifaceted that it's like a diamond that you kind of turn to see all the different facets of it. And the Gospels allow us to see different facets of the excellence of the person and work of Christ. And the distinctive emphasis of Matthew's Gospel is actually one of the easiest to spot when you start to accumulate the, the clues. Right here in verse number 1, if you'll look, Matthew 1 and verse 1, this is the book of the generation or the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus, the Christ, and then we know that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham, so he's a descendant of these two key prominent Old Testament figures. And when you think about Abraham, the second of the two that is mentioned, Abraham is the fountainhead of the Jewish race, and, and that fact emphasized what G. Campbell Morgan said is the racial pedigree of Jesus. He is a Hebrew descendant of Abraham. And God made a special promise, as you know, to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and repeated multiple other times. But the the genealogy also points to the fact that he's a descendant of David, the first of those two figures mentioned. And if you look down to verse number 6, as the genealogy is going along, I mean, verse 2, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and that's the way it goes until there's the first interruption in verse 6, Jesse begat David, and instead of just saying David begat Solomon, we read Jesse begat David the who? And it's repeated again because, and David the who? Begat Solomon. 
And being a descendant of David, to whom God made a special promise in 2 Samuel 7, is talking about the fact that Jesus uh, is a descendant of the one who was promised that of his line a king would sit on an exclusive worldwide kingdom. This is not the racial pedigree of Jesus, but the royal pedigree of Jesus. And it is that theme that starts to stand out. If you go to chapter 2, and I know we're skipping over some, but in verse number 1, it tells us about wise men or magi coming from the east to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, they ask, where is he that is born? And what's the label they use? Where is he that is born king? King of the Jews. And eventually they discover that he, in verse number 6, was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet Micah foretold of the birthplace of the one who is, and even just look at these expressions, out of thee shall come a what? Out of thee shall come, in verse 6, a governor that will do what? That will rule. That's what kings do. He's a descendant of Abraham, but also of David the king, and they're seeking one born king, and the prophet Micah foretold of a governor that would rule, that would be born in Bethlehem. And again, there's other witnesses, but look at chapter 3, and uh, right away, verse number 1, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, he came on on the scene, the ministry scene, and look at the theme of his preaching in verse 2. The theme of his preaching was repent because of what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John ended up being put in prison for his preaching, and if you'll go to chapter 4, when that happened, Jesus himself started preaching, and look all the way down to verse 17, and it tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach, and look at the theme. Jesus began to preach and say what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'll just pause here to say that in the preaching of John and Jesus, the concept of the kingdom of heaven being at hand is that it has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near in virtue of and in the person of the king himself arising, uh, uh, arriving on the earth. He's here. The king is here. And this emphasis goes on to be highlighted throughout the book, well past our text for this morning. When Jesus got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to be again this morning, the people were astonished that he taught as one having what? Do you remember? End of chapter 7, he taught as one having authority. And when you move out of this first teaching section to chapters 8 and 9, we've outlined this before, there are 10 miracles. They're like 10 sample miracles. And in those 10 sample miracles, they demonstrate that, that Jesus has authority over sickness and he has authority over the natural world i mean he can he can command wind and waves and they do what obey him 
And he has authority over the demonic world. And he has authority over death itself. And that's what the people said. As they're observing these miracles, they said, what authority has God given unto man? This blows our mind. There's never been one with such authority. And I'm skipping all the way now to the end of the book. And again, you don't need to turn there. Multiple other indications. But as you know, they ended up putting Jesus on the cross for claiming to be the Son of Man, for claiming to be God's anointed king. And eventually, of course, you know, he was put in the grave. But on the very first Lord's Day, he came back up out of the grave and he was seen and he communicated. But when he gathered those disciples together in the last words of the book of Matthew, he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And on that basis, he gives the Great Commission. But Matthew from the beginning is trying to tell us that Jesus, the Christ, is the king. And he has all the credentials for the one the Jews were looking for to be the king of the Jews. But he's got all the credentials to be the king of the kingdom over which heaven rules. And even by virtue of the resurrection at the end, he's claiming all authority in heaven and earth. And there's multiple other witnesses that are good news to the person and ministry of Christ. But the facet that is unique about Matthew's record is that this is God's anointed king. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. And with that backdrop, all of that coming together, we move into the first teaching section in this book. And if you'll go to chapter 5 now, and continuing right through chapter 7, if you haven't noted that, and and you might tend to lose track of it, you might want to put it right at the beginning of chapter 5, that right from chapter 5 through chapter 7 is one continuous sermon that Jesus preached. And so if you, you know, John the Baptist preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a short message, right? (laughs) Jesus preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that really all he said? Or what would it sound like to hear him preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That's what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. We have a sample of what it was like to hear Jesus preach on that theme. And because of the fact that Matthew records, as you see here in verse number one, that Jesus gave this message on a mountain. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. This message has been referred to commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. And I would just remind us that we've noted an evangelistic thrust was a a significant part of what Jesus was driving to in this message. He was pointing to some of the characteristics of the true citizens of his kingdom. Remember, he's a king and he has a kingdom. And what would it be like to be a true citizen of his kingdom? Many in that day uh, and that audience of that day thought that they were uniquely favored by God because of their Jewish heritage. Because of their their participation and affiliation with all of Jewish life, of the 
the ceremonial, liturgical forms of worship and all the feasts and dotting the I's and crossing the T's of what it meant to, to be a Jew. And they thought they were uniquely favored by God because of all of that. But later in this same sermon, Jesus would say that not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and done this and done this? And they're thinking if anybody has it, they've got it. But he said, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. And we sing a, a kid's song, and it's a great kid's song, but it's good for all of us. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Do you know that that's the closing illustration of Jesus' message? And he said that a foolish man is one that hears only but doesn't do. But a wise man is one who hears and who does. And he communicates that the one who hears and who follows is one who is established on the rock of Christ. But the one who hears and doesn't, the one who just thinks, I'm a Christian, I've always been a Christian, my parents are Christian, my grandparents are Christian, we go to church, we do, we do, we do, we do. And yet the inside and the private life is something completely different. He said it's like somebody who built build their house on sand. This is an evangelistic thrust in Jesus' message. And with that in mind, right from the beginning, he declares that somebody that is truly blessed in terms of their relationship with God, and, and I'm using the word blessed, look at verse 3, blessed. Here's somebody that is truly blessed, somebody that is truly uniquely favored. That is somebody in verse 3 who recognizes that on his own, he's what? He is truly poor. And we explored that term. He's destitute. He's a beggar. On my own, I have nothing to commend myself to God. And in verse 4, a person really blessed by God is someone that goes on to mourn about his sinfulness. That has put him in that kind of condition. And in verse number 5, when he's confronted with that kind of preaching and these facts, in verse 5 he responds meekly. And in verse 6, what he's really consumed with is a desire to be entirely right with God. I mean, he's consumed hungers and thirsts after being right with God. And through the gospel, a man realizes that the righteousness he needs, he doesn't have and can't ever work to obtain. That he has to be given a righteousness that is outside of himself. He has to be given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to be entirely right with God. And when a man comes to Christ, the very real work of the Holy Spirit inside of him brings about such a change that his outlook on his life is never the same. 
This blessed man doesn't remain self-serving and self-protecting and careless about sin. Look at verse number 7. It, he shows real compassion towards others. He's merciful. And in verse number 8, he deals with himself to maintain a purity that is a purity in heart. And in verse 9, he really labors for the good of others. And in verses 10 and 11, he's willing to serve Christ to the point of enduring persecution and even laying down his life if needs be for the gospel's sake. This man's constitution has been radically altered. He's been changed right at the core of his being. Listen, citizens of Christ's kingdom are not different from the citizens of the kingdom of this world at just a few points here and there. It's not just, you know, that two to three hours of our Sunday is a little bit different than the way they spend their life and maybe, you know, another hour or two somewhere in the week. It isn't that citizens of Christ's kingdom have just kind of picked up a a different culture along the way to try to hold to and And our distinctiveness certainly doesn't consist in just certain old-fashioned external markings. The citizens of Christ's kingdom, this is what Jesus is proclaiming right from the beginning. They have different foundations in terms of their mindsets and affections and purposes and directions in life. Everything is altered when a man repents and turns to Christ in saving faith. And the Spirit of God gives him new life and changes him. Everything is altered. And brethren, I just would ask again this morning, do these expressions of the Beatitudes, the marks of people uniquely favored of God, do these describe you? And if you can say yes, by the grace of God, and it is by the grace of God, but you say yes, by the grace of God, they do then rejoice, because that kind of person is one who is in a position of unique favor by God. That's a truly blessed condition. But if these expressions do not describe you, you're in a place to hear the call of the gospel that, hey, repent, turn to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And you know what? You could do that right now in your seat. You can say, God, I am poor and destitute and beggarly and I grieve over my sin and I know I have nothing to offer and my righteousness has to be in Christ alone and I take him by faith save me deliver me change me you could do that right now and God do that miracle of giving you new life and changing everything and with that ground retrace this morning okay we enter into new development in terms of this sermon And what we explore now as we move forward is what is the relationship between these citizens of Christ's kingdom and and the culture at large, all right? Those that are merely citizens of earthly kingdoms because we are citizens of these United States of America, and I think you're thankful for that. I am. But there are people who are merely citizens of the United States of America or whatever country they've been raised in. 
And what is the difference between people who are citizens of Christ's kingdom and those who are merely citizens of earthly kingdoms? It is obvious that that Jesus never intended to remove all of his followers from living in earthly kingdoms. I'm not having us turn this morning, but in John 17, Jesus prayed for his followers and he described them as being in the world, but not what? Not of the world. But after doing that, he specifically said, and Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil which is in the world. So it's clear that we are to remain in this world, even while not being of it. And the question is, why? And and part of the answer to that question is found in the next section here in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 13 to 16 together at this time. You'll see familiar phrases. Notice verse 13. He says, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So you can see that at least one answer to the question of of why the citizens of Christ's kingdom, why we remain interactive with the citizens of this world is so that we can influence them by being salt and light. And this morning we want to consider what it means for Christ's citizens to be the salt of the earth, and next week, Lord willing, what it means to be lights in in this darkened world. Now that statement back in verse number 13, year the salt of the earth, it appears to be so straightforward that Jesus didn't feel like it needed word of of additional explanation. But I think to our our modern minds, we can go uh, in multiple directions. Our minds do, and and really, quite frankly, the commentators do as well. But um, uh, some of you have have heard the name Pastor Robbie Milburn. Some know him more than others. Um, He's one of uh, the missionaries that our team visited with in Nova Scotia, Canada, last summer. And uh, Pastor Milburn and I have been friends for a number of years and as is the case with um, good friends, you know, you agree in your viewpoints on a number of important matters, and, um, and you disagree on some things as well, and with good friends, sometimes you aren't afraid of voicing those disagreements, and, and that's been the case with Pastor Milver and I. So we were at some juncture of a particular disagreement, and he just stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, you know... You impact me like salt. And then he followed up and he said, Sometimes salt preserves. Sometimes it flavors. Uh, sometimes it heals. But you get salt in a tender spot and sometimes it really irritates. 
<clears throat> so I, I knew he was saying, I'm thankful for your friendship, but you're irritating me a little bit right now. Okay? Now, uh, you probably have some friends like that, too, that you're very thankful for, but you know some of those times. And are we supposed to think, like Pastor Milburn did, that, you know, it preserve, you know, flavor, um, heal, irritate? What are we supposed to be thinking about? It's interesting that one sermon I picked up on this passage actually was entitled, Do You Make Men Thirsty? Um, one commentary was kind of following that same theme, and it says Jesus' followers would be like salt in that they would create a thirst for greater information. But then it went on to say, that same commentary, that it could possibly be referring to being a preservative against evil, and then it kind of said, um, whatever you go with, fundamentally be who you are. That's the way this commentary went. Um, another commentary said to preserve from corruption, to season its insipidity, and I wasn't sure what that is. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, so I had to look it up. It's lack of flavor, to freshen and sweeten it. And, and I'm not going to take the time. I really could go on. I'm just illustrating that actually with a large number of people, they get to, you're the salt of the earth, and they just kind of think of all the things that salt might do today. And it's kind of like pick and choose one or all of the above. You really can't go wrong, so be salt. All right? And at one level, I, there's probably some truth. But there is more help in understanding what Jesus meant with as much precision as we can. And to that end, all right, I want to suggest to you that the chief use of, use of salt in the time of Christ, and really for centuries before and after it, was that of being a preservative. That was the chief use of salt. And you, you think about your own kitchen or maybe a freezer in your garage or some other place of storage. You know, how much of your food could you sustain and store up if you did not have refrigeration? And in our day, all the package stuff, pasteurization. Well, salt uh, draws out the, the water out of those substances and actually suppresses the growth of much bacteria and fungi. Um, Robert Lindsay, a professor of food science, said that salt preserves by tying up water molecules so they are not available for bacterial growth by creating an osmotic effect that dries out the microbes and it puts them in a state of arrested growth and they can't create any spoilage. Another, another uh, authority said basically any cell will die with too much exposure to salt. Bacteria is no exception as people found out before the use of refrigeration. All right? So those are some of the comments uh, from people about salt over the centuries. But that's why in the ancient world, all kinds of food was packed in salt. Hides were tanned through the use of salt. Wounds were healed through the application of salt. And all the way back in Leviticus, when God instructed uh, his people concerning their meat offerings, a portion of which was to be preserved and given to the Levites, they were offered with salt. And there's a couple of occasions, Numbers 18, verse 19, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 15, I'm not turning there, but the scripture makes use to covenants of salt 
And, and, and that figure is clearly tied into language which speaks of something enduring or something that was lasting. And again, without belaboring the evidence further, I'm, I'm trying to give you a little so you recognize I haven't just picked one to go with. But there is an abundance of evidence when you actually look at it that, that while God has multiple purposes for his people on the earth, by this figure of speech... Jesus was intending to emphasize this matter of being a preserving influence. Salt of the earth is God's people being something of a preservative in our culture. Now when Jesus then says that you are the salt of the earth, that is implying something about the kingdoms of this earth and the people that inhabit them. And I know it's by way of implication, but it's still important for us to be reminded is that when an unregenerate culture is left to its own, by nature it tends to decay and to deteriorate and to corrupt. Our culture is not neutral. Our sinful culture is corrupt and it is decaying. In Genesis 6, in the days of Noah before the flood, God saw that the imagination of man's heart was only what? Only evil continually. Romans chapter 1. When people know God, but they glorify him not as God, and they are not thankful, and they turn to their idols, remember this, there's three stages in Romans chapter 1 of God's judgment. The first stage is God just letting loose. And what does he let loose for people to do? In the first stage, he just, when he lets loose, people move to all forms of moral filthiness. And when he lets loose again, people move to vile affections. And when he lets loose, people ultimately move to a reprobate mind that takes pleasure in the things that make a man justly fit for hell. Listen, God, God can judge a society by just letting them loose. And when he lets loose the society and it pursues its immorality and it pursues its vile affections and it operates with a reprobate mind and takes pleasure in things that send people to hell, the society destroys itself. That's what happens when God lets loose. 1 John 2 and verse 17 declares that the world passes away and the lust thereof. So Jesus is saying to the true citizens of his kingdom, you are the salt of the earth. He's teaching that the world apart from God is rotten because of sin. And through his work, his disciples were able and really obliged to have a preserving, purifying effect upon, upon even their culture. Now, the Lord doesn't spell that out exactly how believers function that way he doesn't spell out how believers function as a preservative he just states really after he's walked through these qualities of his work 
People that are poor in spirit and mourn and, and respond meekly and seek to be entirely right with God and they treat others right and they pursue purity of heart. Those kind of people just have an influence on society this way. And it's really not hard to think about the ways that can happen in our own day. In a society filled with people that just take God's name in vain at the drop of a hat. And is, and is saturated with other forms of vulgar and corrupt speech. Somebody who abstains for the honor of God is going to have a preserving impact. In a society where children and teenagers disrespectfully blow off their parents again and again and again. A young person that communicates and demonstrates honor is going to have a preserving impact. In a business climate that is given over to kind of massaging the facts a little bit so that the numbers really aren't the truth when it's all said and done, an honest man, a man of integrity, is going to have a preserving impact. In, in a society that is morally loose and sensual on purpose, a people who abstain from fornication and are careful about the dynamics that trigger the traps of sensuality, those kind of people are going to have a preserving impact. It's interesting, again, don't turn, but you can think back to Genesis chapter 18 and, and the interaction between Abraham and God over God's proposed destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember Abraham's even appeal? But if there's 50 righteous, and if there's 40 righteous, and if there's 30 righteous, and, and there was indication that God was prepared to withhold his judgment even on a whole people group because of the presence of some God-fearing righteous individuals. And brethren, I don't know all of what that would mean in the mind of God for our day and our situation, but the Bible does say that God's people being what they are by the grace of God, has a preserving impact on a culture. And, and with that understanding, then, of, of the figure and what he's referring to, as we, as we start to cross into application, I do want to remind us that nowhere does the Scripture call on Christians to entirely disconnect from the world because it's so rotten. Right? There is a rotten, corrupt, decaying world, but the Bible doesn't encourage us to retreat, for instance, into a monastery or to some kind of cloistered community of any kind. One man wrote about this, the salt never did any good when it was sitting on the shelf and the meat on another. To be effective, the salt had to rub into the meat. You can't put meat over there and salt over there and the salt make an impact on that meat. You know what that means? And I, I'm, I know it's kind of funny, but you can't stay in your salt shaker. You've got to get spread around a little bit. We can't stay right here. 
We've got to get out of here, and when we leave here, we're going to have to touch and rub shoulders with some people in this world, or we're not going to be able to influence and have an impact on them. And you know what's interesting is that when we don't do that or we aren't doing it sufficiently, sometimes God allows circumstances in our lives that actually kind of shake us up and sometimes even shake us right out into the people around us. Do you remember that God said, Jesus said when he was leaving right before his ascension, he said that the Spirit is going to come and you'll be witnesses unto me both in where? Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It was supposed to be Jerusalem, yes, but both Jerusalem and all these other places. But for seven chapters, they all stayed where? They all stayed in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, because of the persecution that arose about Stephen, they scattered, and when they scattered, they went everywhere. Sometimes we get into our comfort zones. We get into our, our, you know, just way of operating. And sometimes God has to wake us up to the fact, hey, you're interacting with the same believing people all the time, and you're not making any difference on anybody out in this world because your life is literally not interacting and touching anyone. Interesting, when you go back to the whole salt dynamic, medical personnel of, of various sorts talk about while, while a certain measure of salt is, the body needs it for a healthy function, too much salt in the body causes it to retain water. Remember that my grandmother, before she died, struggled with diabetes and congestive heart failure. She basically had to go to the place of eliminating nearly all salt from any level of her diet. And when she did, we saw her lose puffiness and weight and regain some health for a time. If a body takes too much in, doesn't give it off through perspiration, the body actually becomes bloated and unhealthy. Do you know, brethren, a church can become bloated and unhealthy if the salt is not dispersed into this work of preservation? And that means that we do have to get out of comfort zones and get engaged with the people of our community. But there is another direction in terms of application that is right here in our text. So we're going to have to get out and have an impact. But look at where this text goes with really, in terms of the amount of material. The amount of material is given over to warning. You are the salt of the earth. That's what you are by virtue of Christ's work in you. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall be salted? And the idea of savor there is just, even just if the salt has lost his saltness, is the idea in the text. If it's lost its salty quality. There's no way to add it back in, is the idea, wherewith shall it be salted. You can't put it back in if it's become contaminated and mixed and impure to the place it has no impact. And at that point, it's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. 
it's, it's possible for salt to use its distinctive, to lose its distinctive useful quality. And some forms of salt in the first century, again, were so mixed with impurity and even in some cases mixed with other minerals to the point that you can read some of the technical descriptions of that, but the, the sodium chloride had been leached out and it left it with a physical form, but, but without its distinctive character. And when it loses its distinctive characters, there's no power left to make an impact. And at that point, you just throw it out wherever you can, and people just walk all over it. Brethren, the value of our influence on the kingdoms of this earth will be in direct proportion to the degree to which we live out the value of the true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Today, there is a philosophy that results in deliberate determination of so many to be worldly. And I know I'm repeating myself, but but the determination is to be worldly on purpose. I mean, this is philosophical. On purpose, be like the world in a supposed effort to reach it. That, that ends up resulting in a stance of, of criticizing and attempting to ridicule anything, quote-unquote, conservative. And there's times, perhaps, we need to have vigorous discussion of a Bible principle applied to changing cultural norms. But, but the spirit of accommodation... Because we don't want to be told like salt that, you know, we're in irritation. We, we don't want to stick out. And so we accommodate, accommodate, adjust, conform, be like the culture. That is a pathway to throwing away something of our true distinctive value. So in various services, as you know, even all around our region today, all around <clears throat> certainly our, our culture and Western culture in particular, the world and worldliness is actually going to rule the worship in the name of God. And, and, and we, it will go by the name of Christianity but it will be a Christianity that is just trampled on and trodden underfoot by the world. It's lost its uniqueness. And it's been entirely walked all over by the world. Brethren, we, we have a great mission. We have a great calling. And, and really, when, when you... Get an opportunity to have your vision raised about what God wants to do through a people who will stay in this world and interact with the people of our culture and will do it for Christ's sake and recognize that in doing it for Christ's sake, that means I've got to continue to reflect the work of Christ in me and to stand out and to be different so that when my life touches them, there is a useful value to that. 
When you start to do that, abstaining from worldliness doesn't become a heavy burden. It becomes part of your mission and part of your calling. And really your prayer is, God, I want to engage those people. I want to contact their life. I want to rub shoulders. But God, by your grace, I want to be in this world, but not of this world, so that the people of this world can be impacted by your work through me. It becomes a glorious mission, not an incredible burden. And really, we need to be asked again this morning, have we been moving towards anything that resembles embarrassment at our distinctiveness? And that can't happen. Sometimes we can lose sight of our vision and our calling and our mission and the unique privilege. And, and, and we can start to think about what I can't do, what I'm not supposed to do. And, and I start to think rules and constraints and prohibitions and all of that. And, and I can actually start to, to bristle and start to get embarrassed about how different I am. Have I been moving at all towards embarrassment at distinctive or really... Have I been rejoicing but by, that by the grace of God I am fulfilling a God-intentioned function in this earth? You know, Jesus didn't say, be salt. He said, you are salt. But the thing he did caution is, don't lose. Don't lose the distinctiveness of my work in you. Don't compromise it to the place it doesn't continue to have its impact. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the Christian is not only to be different, he is to glory in this difference. He is to be as different from other people as the Lord Jesus Christ was clearly different from the world in which he lived. The Christian is a separate, unique, outstanding kind of an individual. There is to be in him something which marks him out and which is to be obvious and recognized. Let every man then examine himself. And so, brethren, let us examine ourselves. Have we retreated? Or are we rubbing shoulders? On purpose. But then are, as we rub shoulders, have we, by the grace of God, continued to rejoice in the distinctiveness and even guarded the distinctiveness so that what I'm rubbing shoulders with allows Christ to be seen and a difference to be made? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and really want to give 